Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon in the description section of the video. If you have a question, we please enter it into the Q&A chat and we'll ask at the end of the presentation. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Christine Cyclo. She is from Washington State and attended Western University of Health Science College of Osteopathic Medicine uh, for the Pacific. Her interests are preventative care, heart conditions, metabol metabolic syndrome, global health, and lifestyle medicine. We are excited to say that she will be joining the GHI Cardiology Fellowship this summer. Outside of medicine, Dr. Cyclo enjoys lifting weights, singing, cooking, volunteering, expanding her medical knowledge base, and cuddling her dog. Join me in welcoming Dr. Cyclo. Hi everyone, I'm Christine Cyclo. I'm a third year internal medicine resident here with Northeast Georgia Medical Center. And today I'm gonna to be presenting on the fast paced advances in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. I do not have any disclosures for this talk. So as for our learning objectives, I want us to understand heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, also known as half PEF, including the definitions, signs, symptoms, and risk factors. We're gonna be discussing the proposed pathophysiology of heart failure with both preserved and reduced ejection fractions, and reviewing the new trial called MyPACE to discuss the effects of personalized accelerated pacing in patients with HEFPEF. So let's just start by talking about what is heart failure? Because I think we've all heard it, but a lot of times people don't understand the actual definition. It is a complex syndrome in which the heart cannot pump sufficient blood to meet the body's needs. And there are about five different models used to define heart failure and different types. Um, there's multiple definitions, but basically they all entail clinical features of heart failure and objective evidence of cardiac dysfunction. And the Global Burden of Disease study identified up to 17 different etiologies for heart failure. And on the right here, I know it's small, but I just took an image of the different criteria or models that exist to define it, just to show you the complexity. So what are the risk factors? Because we see a lot of patients with these. Hypertension is seen in about 40 to 90% of patients who carry a diagnosis of heart failure. Diabetes is seen in 20 to 45% of patients. Coronary artery disease in about 30 to 60. Obesity in 25 to 40%. And about half of these patients are smokers. In the US, about one third of the population has at least one of these risk factors. And the number has increased by 30% from the year of 1979 to 2002. And if you look at the graphs on the right, it just shows the different risk factors and how they've been increasing in percentage over the past couple of years. So the clinical symptoms of patients with heart failure, most frequently we see patients coming in with shortness of breath, dizziness, lightheadedness, often associated with hypoxia, exertional chest pain, swelling of the legs, hands, feet, 
sudden weight gain and significant fatigue and weakness. As for ejection fraction or the squeeze percentage of the heart, we separate heart failure into HEF-REF or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, which means that the EF is less than 40%. And this is about half of the patients who have heart failure. Um, patients with HEF-PEF or preserved ejection fraction, by definition is EF of greater than or equal to 50%. Now there is a new addition. In the past, we used to think of either systolic or diastolic or HEF-PEF or HEF-REF. Well, now the addition is HEF mid-range EF or improved EF. And so by definition, these are the patients who have an EF of 40 to 49% and had a baseline EF of less than or equal to 40, but after beginning medications to help with their heart failure, they had at least a 10-point improvement in their ejection fraction with treatment. So as for classification, we use the ACC or AHA classification, and then also the New York Heart Association classification. And we'll go over that one on the next slide. So for the ACC classification, stage A are patients who are at risk for heart failure, but don't yet have it. So this is a lot of the patients we see in clinic. And I think it's important to shift our mentality to think about them as patients who are at risk for developing the condition because oftentimes we say, okay, you have high blood pressure, but it's okay, it hasn't caused any issues yet. Well, if you think about it long-term, it is going to cause heart failure down the line. So we need to treat them aggressively early. Stage B patients are pre-heart failure. So they do not have current symptoms or previous symptoms, but have evidence of heart failure in terms of increased filling pressures, structural heart disease, or things like elevated NT pro BNP levels or persistently elevated cardiac troponin levels, which indicate ongoing stress to the heart. Stage C and D is what we tend to see in the hospital. With stage C, these are patients who are symptomatic with their heart failure. And we just went over the symptoms a slide or two ago, so I'm sure you remember those. Stage D is advanced heart failure. And these are patients who have marked heart failure symptoms that interfere with daily life and have recurrent hospitalizations despite attempting GDMT or goal-directed medical therapy. And a big part of this too is sometimes it is patient non-compliance, but we have to think about why are they non-compliant? Some patients cannot tolerate medications and that leads to progression of disease and we need to interfere with other modalities at that point. So the New York Class Association, looks at class one, which is patients with no symptoms and normal physical activity. NYHA class two are patients who have mild symptoms, but still are able to perform their normal daily activities. Class three patients have moderate symptoms. They're comfortable at rest, but have difficulty with ADLs or activities of daily living. And then class four are the patients who have severe symptoms and are short of breath even at rest. So I want to delve a little, a little bit into the pathophysiology of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and then we'll talk about preserved ejection fraction. So HEF-REF is characterized by a cycle of neurohormonal adaptive and maladaptive mechanisms triggered by decreased cardiac output. We see activation of the renal angiotensin aldosterone system, which causes adverse cardiac remodeling, fluid retention, and clinical manifestations of hef 
Um, on the slide on the right, you can see where the different medications act in the pathway to help improve cardiac remodeling and decrease the amount of fluid that patients retain. So those medications are referred to as GDMT or goal-directed medical therapy. This is useful in HEF-REF, reduced EF, but not in HEF-PEF. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. The first medications are beta blockers, and they have been shown to reverse deleterious neurohormonal effects of the sympathetic nervous system. Medications including ACE, ARB, and ARNI, so things like lisinopril, Losartan, and Tresto, um, inhibit deleterious effects of aldosterone, which causes vasoconstriction, inflammation, fibrosis, and is arrhythmogenic. MRAs are mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and they modulate fibrotic scar formation and may have a beneficial effect on cardiac arrhythmias as well. So most frequently, we think of spironolactone. SGLT2 are sort of the new kid on the block, Farsica, dipagliflozin. Um, the mechanism of action is currently unclear as to how it works in heart failure specifically, but the hypothesis is that it mitigates glycemic-related toxicity, promotes ketogenesis, and increases hematocrit to improve cardiac remodeling. Because when this medication came out, it was actually used for diabetes, and we just saw the positive effects that it had in our heart failure patients. So in 2010, the SHIFT trial came out. And this was a first of its kind because this trial actually looked at heart rate as therapeutic ranges for heart failure. And this was really the beginning of us looking at heart rate as a goal for patients who have CHF. In the SHIFT trial, they did show that in HEF-REF, use of beta blockers with iverberdine to maintain heart rates of 50 to 60 instead of 70 or greater actually lowered mortality, heart failure hospitalizations, and improved LV remodeling and quality of life of patients with HEF-REF. So what about HEF-PEF? The pathophysiology is different. Um, there's obviously some overlap, but we don't fully understand it. The driving factor seems to be inflammation, whether microvascular or macrovascular. Things like sleep apnea with chronic hypoxia and not sufficient oxygen flow to the brain um, during sleep, COPD, hypertension, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. With the constant systemic inflammation, you do see elevation of um, CRP, IL-6, TNF-alpha inhibitors, which does lead to microvascular inflammation. And the hypothesis is that you develop microvascular cardiac ischemia, which leads to then myocardial fibrosis, thickening of the heart, and diastolic dysfunction. So after it was understood that the pathophysiology is very different, the question was, what can we do to improve HEF-PEF? Because these patients are extremely sick. They come in with very similar symptoms. But unfortunately, we don't really know how to treat them outside of diuretics and sending them home, hoping that things don't recur. Well, trials started to come in, and unfortunately, all of them did not show any improvement. But as Thomas Edison said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. So let's talk about the trials that did work. Mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, or MRAs, um, trial included patients with HEF-PEF, and MRAs reduced the risk of heart failure hospitalizations, but did not clearly reduce the risk of mortality. Big thing is, if we give someone a medication, we have to think about the side effects. And with mineralocorticoid antagonists, 
um, we have to be very cautious of hyperkalemia. So a lot of times if you see patients who have heart failure, we check their labs every one to three months to make sure their potassium stays low. We have to talk to these patients about their diet and making sure to track their potassium intake if they are at higher risk of inducing hyperkalemia. So the TOPCAT trial came out in 2014. And it randomly assigned uh, 3,500 patients with symptomatic heart failure and LVEF greater than or equal to 45% to receive either placebo or spironolactone, or aldactone as the brand name. And they did a composite primary outcome, including death from cardiovascular causes, aborted cardiac arrest, or hospitalizations for heart failure. They did show lower, but not statistically significant difference with spironolactone compared to placebo. Hospitalizations for heart failure were less frequent in the spironolactone group at 12% compared with the placebo group of 14.2%. With the associated hyperkalemia of 19% in spironolactone group versus 9% in the placebo group, the study initially was deemed to be unsuccessful. Fast forward to 2020, a secondary analysis was actually performed on the data. And what they saw was that spironolactone actually did have a statistical difference in decreasing the primary outcome in patients with HFPEV who had resistant hypertension, but not in patients who had treated hypertension compared to the placebo group. So what about SGLT2s? They inhibit, the SGLT2 inhibitors reduced the risk of heart failure hospitalizations and improved quality of life for patients, but did not clearly reduce the risk of mortality. And again, every medication comes with its own side effects. So for SGLT2s, they cause patients to pee out, pee out a lot of sugar, which can then increase their chance of urinary tract infections and genital infections if they have poor hygiene. So that's a question we always ask our patients who do have heart failure is how frequently they have UTIs, do they use Depends, and about their personal hygiene. There have actually been several different trials on SGLT2s all done in 2021. So the Emperor Preserve trial assigned patients to either the empagliflozin group or placebo. And they looked at patients who had HEF, PEF with EF greater than 40%, NYHA class two to four with symptomatic heart failure and elevated NT-proB NP levels. And the treatment group had lower risk of heart failure hospitalizations, nine versus 12% in the placebo group. And the risk of cardiovascular death was similar between the empagliflozin and uh, placebo groups. The SOLAST HF trial also came out in 2021 and recently hospitalized patients with type two diabetes and either HEF-PEF or HEF-REF were assigned to treatment with citagliflozin or placebo. And they also saw a reduction in hospitalizations for heart failure and urgent care visits for heart failure events. Finally, the preserved HF trial um, looked at patients with LVF greater than or equal to 45%, also same NYHA class two to four and elevated NT-proB and P levels. And they looked at dipagliflozin versus placebo. They did show that the treatment group had improvement in the Kansas City cardiomyopathy score, as well as the six minute walk test. This just goes to show that not only did patients have improvement in their hospitalization rates, 
but also quality of life and their functional status. The last group of medications is the ARNI or angiotensin nephrolysin inhibitor. We call it Zacubitril valsartan or the brand name of Entresto. So the Paragon HF trial came out in 2019. It was a multinational, double-blinded, randomized, parallel group, active control trial. They had 4,800 patients, half of which were assigned to Sacubitril valsartan, and half received just valsartan on its own. The participants, um, the trial basically tried to get them to the max doses. And they did show a lower number of hospitalizations for heart failure, although not statistically significant. There was, however, favorable change in the NYHA class from baseline as well as renal composite outcomes. And the uh, Kansas cardiomyopathy questionnaire clinical summary score and death, however, those two were not significant in placebo compared to ARNI. So a big part of heart failure are the associated risk factors. But I think it's very important to note that it is a bi-directional impact of disease. And I think we see this time and time again with our patients who, if you have shortness of breath at rest, chances of you getting up and forcing yourself to exercise are gonna be pretty low. And so patients who have obesity are at risk for heart failure, but then once they develop heart failure and they aren't able to move as much, the obesity gets worse as well. And it ends up being a cycle that just fuels itself. And we see this with many of the risk factors, including COPD, anemia, diabetes, renal dysfunction, sleep apnea. And so I think as physicians, our big role is to interfere, interfere where we can and help patients, you know, if they have sleep apnea, get them a CPAP, figure out what settings work for them. And just treating those risk factors early can prevent progression of disease. So now I just want to touch base on a new trial that came out. So this is called the MyPACE trial. And it came out in February of 2023. It looked at the effects of personalized accelerated pacing on quality of life, physical activity, and atrial fibrillation in patients with preclinical and avert heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So it's not the first of its kind, but it definitely took things a step further. So as I mentioned, the SHIFT trial had come out in 2010, looking at heart rate as a therapeutic range for HEF-REF. Well, there's been a couple of studies that have looked at heart rate as a therapeutic range for HEF-PEF as well. And pacing at moderately accelerated rates may convey benefits in individuals with HEF-PEF. Studies have been done from 2016 to 2020, and they show that accelerated pacing in a porcine model of concentric LV hypertrophy and assessed hemodynamics in patients with HEFPEF suggested improvement in the patient's symptoms. Additionally, there were two trials done, but they were both only four weeks long um, that did pacing with preclinical or overt heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And they did show some improvement in filling pressures and heart failure symptoms. So the MyPACE trial was a blinded, randomized clinical trial that was just published. They enrolled patients with stage B and C HEFPEF at the University of Vermont Medical Center Pacemaker Clinic. The study was conducted between June 2019 and November 2020. 
which is very different from the previous studies that were four weeks long. The participants were randomly assigned to personalized accelerated pacing or usual care and were followed up for one year. The accelerated pacing group um, had a personalized calculation that was used to figure out what their ideal heart rate should be that used a resting heart rate algorithm based on height and modified ejection fraction. And if anyone is interested in the actual calculation they used, it is in the supplemental data of the publication. So as for the patients, um, about half, 52 were men and 48 were female with a median age of 75. Now, as the risk factors we had talked about, they had a lot of those. So hypertension was seen in about 83% of patients in both groups. Paroxysmal atrial fibrillation was present in half of the patients. Persistent AFib was present in about 10% of the patients in both groups. Coronary artery disease in 30 to 40%. Diabetes in 30% in each group. And then obstructive sleep apnea in about 30% of the patients. So the sample was pretty equivalent on both sides. They initially had assessed 1,500 patients for eligibility, um, but unfortunately, if you're going to pace someone and increase the heart rate on their pacemaker, a lot of things go into effect. And so in total, 107 patients were randomized. And at the end, there were 100 left with a couple of patients dropping out or being lost to follow-up. But the group included, again, 107 patients, 57, were in the usual care group, and then 50% received the personalized accelerated pacing. One of the outcomes they looked at was the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure questionnaire. And this questionnaire had actually been designed to assess health-related quality of life of patients with heart failure in adults. This questionnaire has been validated against other heart failure questionnaires and instruments as well. And I did include it here on the right. Basically, it asks patients questions on their quality of life and how their heart failure affects them in their day-to-day -day life over the past four weeks. For the study outcomes, the primary outcome was serial change in that Minnesota Living with Heart Failure Questionnaire score. And in the control group um, or the usual care group, they did not see as much improvement as they did in the treatment group. There was an improvement of 10.9 um, points in the first month and 15.0 by the one year mark. Secondary outcomes that were looked at included the NT ProBNP levels, pacemaker detected physical activity, atrial fibrillation compared to baseline, and then adverse clinical events. So the NT proBNP levels predict not only heart failure, but also atrial fibrillation by assessing filling pressures and wall stress. Lower NT proBNP reflects atrial unloading. And NT proBNP levels were available for 91 patients, 50 in the usual care and 41 in the personalized accelerated pacing group. And the levels were obtained at baseline and at several of the follow-up visits. The NT proBNP levels were lower with personalized accelerated pacing at follow-up compared to usual care. And we'll look at those numbers in a minute. 
So for physical activity, again, this was pacemaker detected physical activity. So this wasn't patient reported. Compared to baseline, we did see an increase in daily activity um, in the PACE group and actually a decrease in the usual care group. So the usual care group had a decrease of physical activity by 22 minutes um, at the one year mark. But the pacing group had an improvement of physical activity by 36 minutes a day at the six month mark and 47 minutes a day at the one year mark. Additionally, at the one year follow-up, daily activity levels were greater and statistically significantly different. As for atrial fibrillation, compared with usual care, uh, the treatment with personalized accelerated pacing reduced the relative risk of device detected AFib by 27%. And yes, the sample did have low power, but there was no difference in thoracic impedance. As for blinding, it seems like it would be hard to lie to someone about what their heart rate is. But interestingly, they did ask survey questions of the patients in both groups at the one month and one year marks of, do you believe that your heart rate has been adjusted or changed? And the number of incorrect answers was equivalent among both groups. So patients really couldn't tell if their heart rate had been changed from baseline or not. And for those who prefer visuals, this is just summarizing all those secondary outcomes. So um, changes in quality of life were statistically different, changes in NT-proBNP levels, and then change in physical activity levels as well. So I think whenever we do any intervention, we always have to ask, what are the potential side effects? And so they did list the clinical events, um, which, I found to be very interesting, the usual care group, six patients had to either double or initiate use of loop diuretic therapy compared to two patients in the pacing group. And three patients in the usual care group had to start antiarrhythmic medications compared to no patients in the personalized pacing group. And most of the other visits were similar, but the usual care group had more hospitalizations for atrial fibrillation, two versus zero, and then heart failure hospitalizations was also greater in the usual care group with one person needing hospitalization and three needing urgent care visits for it. So just to sum it up, in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, decreasing heart rate can have a deleterious effect while it is beneficial in HEF-REF. Pharmacological heart rate lowering in HEF-PEF patients has been associated with reduced functional capacity, increased rates of AFib, increased heart failure exacerbation hospitalizations, cardiovascular mortality, myocardial infarction, and stroke. It has also been shown to increase central arterial systolic and LV diastolic pressures, leading to increased arterial and ventricular wall stress. Increasing heart rate in HEFPEF patients enhances myocardial contractility. And the accelerated relaxation kinetic leads to augmentation of cellular calcium handling in the myocardial force improving frequency and relaxation frequency relationships. Um, the reduction in filling pressure at higher heart rates in patients with HEFPEF 
is likely due to a leftward and downward shift of the pressure volume relationship curve towards smaller LV volumes and pressures. And um, some of the studies that had looked at relaxation kinetic accelerated heart rates showed improvement with heart rate up to 125 beats a minute. And potential improvement in half-pep symptoms as well might be coming from the improved cardiac output with the decreased NT-proBNP and decreased myocardial stiffness over time. So in conclusion, decreased NT-proBNP is indicative of atrial offloading and may explain the decreased atrial fibrillation burden in the accelerated pacing group. TopCat and other conceptual frameworks assessing iverpridine and beta blockers have shown that lower heart rates may predispose patients with HEFPEV to AFib and CHF exacerbations. And finally, the MyPACE trial of 2023 does suggest that moderately accelerated rate is safe and beneficial in the older patient population with preclinical and overt HEFPEV. I do want to thank my mentor, um, our advanced heart failure specialist, Dr. Eglum, for helping with the concept and the presentation, and our interim PD, Dr. Romana, for all her support. Here are my references, and the floor is open for discussion. Thank you. Just a reminder, if you are viewing online and have a question, please enter it into the Q&A chat, and we'll make sure to ask that. Any questions or comments in the room? Uh, by the way, uh, you ought to teach a whole bunch of presenters here how to do it, because you did it precise to the point and within 30 minutes, which is a miracle. The majority of guys go on an hour and you fall asleep. So it ain't got nothing to do with age. It has to do with <laughs> boring uh but to the point <laughs> excellent i'm going to give you something outside the box because in medicine i can see it because even friends cardiology friends and other people and i've gone to cardiologists sorry is getting that age more or less where the engine is beginning to fail and i gotta check the oil and rotate the tires but more than anything else um vitamins believe it or not I mean, change your lifestyle, quit smoking. You know, you got 70% of the population right now who's obese, no if, buts, or wise. So that in itself has repercussion because you got sleep apnea and you wake up in the morning and you want to go to Dunkin' Donuts and get a box of donuts and eat more sugar. So sugar is going to kill you, no if, buts, or wise. It destroys the endothelial everywhere. So that's one of the things, you know, why the chances of heart attack and the whole thing. And also other carbohydrates like wheat, oat, and barley, believe it or not. So taurine is a great vitamin B complex, one of the B, B, vitamin B complex. And guess what? It helps, it helps you with the nerves, recovery of nerves. But most important, it helps you with stage one heart failure more than anything else. The other thing is if you're beginning to get some of these guys, what you want to do is increase the number of mitochondria. Remember, striated muscle is for the body and smooth is for the heart more than anything else. So you got to look at the other thing, increase the uh, CoQ10 in your, in your body more than anything. Else. So 200 milligrams twice a day, ubiquinol is one of the greatest ones there is not, you know, getting the, the pharmacological agent to be out there more than anything else. 
a whole bunch of IPG6. It's also fantastic for the myocardium more than anything else. Magnesium, phosphorus, essential minerals are also needed in the body, which we lack because we've been farming the land for over 200 years. So, you know, we're lacking in a lot of that way, way behind. Uh, the other thing is you got to ask the patients, I, have you had your gallbladder taken out? If they say yes, the propensity of them to have thyroid problems is going to be so high, it's not even funny. Why? Because thyroid gets composed in the gallbladder. You know, uh, T1, T2 get together, get married, and have T3 and T4. So it's one of those things that you need more than anything else. And we can talk for hours because, you know, but you got to think outside of the box. And in medicine and residency, I could almost see it X number of years ago. Yeah, Abraham was still alive. Abraham Lincoln was still alive when I went to medical school. So anyhow, one of those things, you, you know, we can talk over it, but, but we're limited to think just inside the box and think what the pharmaceutical companies want, not what is out there that is reality. Because I'm sorry to say they're making money. And by the way, lisinopril is one of the best ones there is. Why? If you read and you can go and read Lisinopril does one thing that no other one does. The chromosome, the telomeres in your chromosomes, it engages in the telomeres and it makes them grow again and grow bigger. Believe it or not. Again, with a diet and the whole thing, you know, continue to smoke and do pot and do this. No, it ain't going to help you. So, and thank you, Mark, Mark. Thank you very much. All right. Any other questions or comments for Dr. Cyclo? All right, thanks. Excellent presentation there. So I think probably one of the, the main things that this study kind of teaches us and some of the points you went over is the fact that if, for patients that have HFPEF, we shouldn't automatically put these patients on beta blocker, right? A significant percentage of them have chronotropic insufficiency, meaning if you if they get up and stand up and start walking, their heart rate doesn't go up appropriately, and they've got a lot of symptoms related to that. So when you beta block them unnecessarily, uh, their symptom symptoms actually worsen. So just keep in mind, HFPEF, they don't get automatic beta blocker unless they've got a strong indication for it, whether AFib, coronary disease, or things of that nature. All right, cool. Okay, I don't see anything online. Anything else in the room? Thank you, Dr. Cyclo. Great job. Thank you, guys.